and welcome to the latest Autocar Business Powerlist 100 podcast sponsored by Keyloop. In this special series, we are looking at the challenges and opportunities facing individuals on our Powerlist 100, a collection of the 100 most influential people within the automotive industry. I'm Mark Tischel, the editor of Autocar. With me today is Peter Campbell, the Financial Times' global motor industry correspondent. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. And Harvey from Keyleap, uh, the Keyleap's Chief Alliances Officer. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, so we're talking disruptors, so a big open one to start, Peter. How disrupted has the automotive industry been? I mean, the car industry is a fascinating industry to write about at any time, but particularly at the moment, you've got probably four things that are all fundamentally changing the very definition of what a car is, right? So for a hundred years, a car has been something that you drive, that you own, and that runs on an internal combustion engine. And all of those are changing. Uh, Some of them are changing this decade, but they're all changing and they're all forcing the whole of the car industry to think fundamentally about its business model and all the businesses that hang off this industry to think about the changes. And obviously, you know what those changes are. They're electrification, they're autonomy, they're connectivity, and they're new forms of ownership. And the really interesting thing is that any one of those on their own would be enough to disrupt the industry. But they're all coming at the same time, which is why people sometimes say the car industry is at a fork in the road. It's, it's kind of not. It's kind of entering a labyrinth, right? It's actually much more complicated. And, you know, there's no playbook. There's no, no one knows which decisions to take uh, to come out the other end unscathed, which is why we've seen huge numbers of startups coming in, why we've seen car makers doing uh, a whole vast number of deals and arrangements to try and get through this period, uh, and why it is so enormously unpredictable, which is what makes it so fascinating to cover at the moment. Mm. Yeah, not short of stuff to write about is uh, is very very true. <laughs> haven't run out of, haven't run out of things to write about just yet. Absolutely. And Harvey, you you came to the industry from outside from from the tech world. I'm yes. very interested. What 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 did what were your perceptions of the automotive industry before you arrived? What have you found? And and have you done some of the disrupting yourself? I mean, I would like to think we're doing a lot of disrupting, um, or at least supporting our customers in managing that change. Um, it's interesting because I think that the automotive industry is just now hitting into a stride of transformation. Um, I think it's been looming for a bit, but I think now we're kind of in the thick of it. Um, I came from more core tech background, data analytics, CRM companies, things like that. Um, and from the outside, automotive looked a little bit like business as usual. And then once you start peeling back the layers, to Peter's comment, you know, there's there's quite a few categories that are affecting a ton of change all at the same time. Um, so I think it's it's an interesting point right now to be in. Hmm. Of those four areas, Peter, if you can pick a biggest, what is what is the biggest uh, most expensive? change of those of those four areas the industry can confront uh the one that is coming near term is electrification and this is very complicated and very very expensive because uh first of all you've got lots of different regions in the world moving at different speeds uh you've got car makers deciding do they want to go all in on one decarbonization technology for most of them that's ev but do they want to keep their options open for others and it's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, 
couple of years ago at COP26, lots of the car makers stood up and said they were not going to sell any more internal combustion engine vehicles from 2040 anywhere in the world. And most of them signed up to that pledge, but quite a lot didn't, right? Volkswagen didn't, Toyota didn't, Stellantis didn't, BMW didn't. And I spent a lot of time talking to those companies about why they made those decisions. And it's broadly not because they hate the planet, right? They have very good reasons for wanting to move slower on those or wanting to keep various technology options open. Uh, Particularly someone like Toyota talks about hydrogen being used, talks about the need for affordable vehicles in lots of parts of the world. We'll come on to this, obviously, but they say hybrids are much more affordable and EVs remain too expensive. But all the car makers are being pushed in certain regions by regulatory speeds. So you've got Europe trying to phase out engine sales by 2035. Chinese tier one cities are already there. You've got US with targets. You've got Britain with its EV um, sales mandate, which comes in next year. And so that suddenly the number of places these guys have to spread their chips on the board get bigger and bigger. And EVs are uh, incredibly expensive to develop. Um, there's much lower barriers to entry, so it's much easier for the Chinese to compete, which we're going to come on to as well. And uh, fundamentally, you then have to think about whether you and how you wind down an existing engine business. You know, there's millions of people across Europe employed in engine development and uh, R&D. All of those jobs are going to disappear in the next 15, 20 years. Some of those car makers now are thinking about spinning off those businesses. Some of them are thinking about winding them down. But you've got this structured, managed industrial decline to manage at the same time as running a new business that disrupts your old business. And both of those are very big industrial processes and that fundamentally change how you run and manage and manufacture your vehicle, right? I mean, we had a we had a piece this morning looking at gigacasting, which Tesla's doing, which fundamentally potentially changes the way that assembly lines are run. Uh, your entire supply chain changes, right? Because there's 3,000 moving parts go down to you know, maybe 100. Um, and then fundamentally, what goes into your car changes, because, you know, if you make your own engines, if you do your own engine development, you're not going to manufacture your own batteries. You're not going to know the cell chemistry. That technology sits somewhere else, and you become far more of a hardware integrator than you do a value-add R&D production company. And so the car makers are thinking about where they want to play in you know, what the consultants call the value chain, right? And they're thinking about where they play in that. And all of this stuff, they could probably work out if they had the time to, but they don't have the time to because the regulators are pushing so fast to get EVs uh, out and have full EV targets. And so that, I think, of all the of all the changes we're going to talk about, is the necessarily the biggest, but one of the biggest, certainly the most expensive, and certainly the most near-term risk at the moment. Hmm. How hard is the automotive industry to disrupt, would you say, Harvey, in, in the context of all that legislation, um, different re- regulations globally, and also, you know, century-old processes for the most part makes it quite tough. Yeah, um, it, it boggles the mind um, how <laughs> overly, maybe unnecessarily complex it is. Uh, we operate across ninety different countries, and so dropping into each one of them and learning about the market sp- specifics, legal and fiscal challenges, or changes that are coming hard and fast. 
as Peter mentioned, you know, all the differing levels in terms of the deadline for EV from all the different governments. Um, it is highly complex. I think it's also, at least for our business and for our customer base, they're not only are the OEMs trying to manage that change themselves, but then pushing the change down into the dealerships. And that goes for, you know, potentially their sales processes, but it also goes for data exchanges and things of that nature. So there's a lot to concentrate on. I think the key for literally everyone involved is focus. Like what what do you want to be really good at? And focus on that thing and partner to do the rest, which is to your point, Peter, about the batteries and, and getting those from somewhere else and essentially just being the the outfit that combines all the parts maybe that is actually your value add and you just outsource everything else mm. i don't know it's it's hard because from a supply chain standpoint you want to do as much as you can to bring the cost down but you can't do it all well and it's interesting because it, it, it's very hard to think of parallels for the industry of what they're going through but a lot of people point to the smartphone industry and if you look at the smartphone industry and the way that that was disrupted you know, car makers are thinking about, do they want to do, for instance, their own software, right? Which is a really hard problem to do. And just as many of the tech companies are finding making cars is very hard, most of the car companies are finding actually making software is very hard. And if you look at the smartphone parallel, you know, do you really want to end up as HTC if you're a car maker where you're making, you know, kind of, you know, commoditized hardware which runs someone else's software and that's what the consumer values Probably not, but then do you want to end up as Apple? Well, it's very hard to do that. So it's really interesting that that's kind of one of the huge areas that's changing as well. So, yeah, we talk a lot about like build versus buy. Yeah. Like, have you really thought about how much energy and time and money it's going to take you to develop your own software when you're a manufacturer? Like, let's just do the math. I know on the surface it looks great because you can have control and you can differentiate, but can you really? I don't know. So what, what do technology companies want out of the automotive industry? You know, to, just to stay with tech for a moment, you know, what, what's the prize? I mean, I think that they, they see an industry ripe for the picking that hasn't really changed a whole lot. You know, I was at a conference earlier this year with the ARN um, where they were just talking about how, you know, Ford has been selling cars the same for the last hundred years, so why should we change it? So you, you take that rhetoric and then you come in with fresh set of eyes from Amazon, Apple, whoever it may be, like, oh, we can flip this, but this is easy. And then of course they dig under the skin and it's not so much, but I do think it is not, maybe not the last industry, but one of the last industries that has really had just like a, a complete upheaval in terms of heading towards a transformation. Do you see it changing? You know, in, in the time you've spent in the industry, have you have you noticed meaningful change, maybe in the way that car, cars are made, bought and sold? The conversation's shifting. So, yes, um, meaningful, probably not, but it seems to be trending in the right direction. I don't know. I think one of the interesting things when you look at the up and coming. Like Rivian or um, any of the others that are, um, you know, like Rimac, things like that. Those are 
company is built from the ground up with a fresh pair of eyes that potentially haven't really come from the industry. They're completely different. They don't have all of the baggage that an older, uh, more established OEM would do. And so they have the ability to flex and shift quite quickly and get to market in new and different ways without having to deal with the historical pressure um, or ways of working. And I think that's interesting. And they and, and Tesla, of course, are like pushing the industry out of their comfort zone. Mm. Naming names, Peter, who's, who's been the biggest disruptors to the industry? Uh, where where has that come from? Uh, talking about <clears throat> right for picking, are there, is it easier to make an electric car company than it is to, to make a software company in, in the industry? Uh, that's a great question. It's uh, the barriers to entry in electric cars are certainly lower, right? I mean, we couldn't, you and I couldn't build an engine. You probably could actually build an engine car together, but we could have a pretty good fist at making an electric car, right? But then actually, as Tesla discovered, making cars is hard, right? I mean, the just-in-time process, the supply chain management, the factories, all of that. And this is probably why we've seen most of the EV startups in the West go bust or warn that they're running out of money. Um, so making cars is is still pretty hard, but EVs do, you know, significantly lower about the barrier to entry. But I mean, if you're going to pick one disruptor, it, it has to be Musk, right? I mean, there is just if you look at everything he did, because as Megan said, you start with this ground up approach of going, I don't care how it was done before, I don't care how we've done it for a hundred years. Why is this done like this? Why can't we do it like that? And that is on a whole number of things with Tesla, right? You know, the vehicle architecture around EVs, uh, you know, the kind of use of components, uh, everything else, the use of software. Why do you need, you know, a dashboard? Why not have a screen? Why not have this? Well, you know, lots of ways he's, he's done it uh, has now led the car industry to follow, right? I mean, you know, we look just at, at, at gigacasting. This was something the car industry has casted for a long time with small parts, Musk looked at one of his children's diecast toys and went, why can't we just do this for a car, right? Made this massive press and then is casting whole underbodies for vehicles and the rest of the car industry is going, oh yeah, that can work. And suddenly a process that involves, you know, a hundred parts and robots and all sorts of things is done by one machine. And you can therefore make changes mid-vehicle life cycle, and you can do all sorts of different things you couldn't do before. Now, there's issues with casting around repair and other issues like that, but it's just one of those examples where, you know, the car industry has then said, oh, no, actually, that is better. So I think if you're looking at disruptors, I mean, he ha he sort of has to be number one. But it, but it is, I mean, even they almost died several times, right? I mean, I remember we... If I'm allowed to name drop, we had him at our auto summit last year and he dialed in for about an hour and a half and they have this incredibly ambitious target to make 20 million vehicles a year by 2030, which will make them the same size as VW and Toyota combined, which is, you know, by any normal standards is nuts. Um, but I remember asking, is it harder to get to 2030 from where you are today or was it harder to get to where you are today from starting? And he kind of did that thing where his eyes roll and you can see the tog cogs turning and there's a kind of awkward 10 second pause. And then he said, no, it was harder to get to where we are today. So it's still really, really hard to start an EV car company and scale it and get to any decent size. As we're seeing, even with 
Rivian, even with Lucid, the guys who are probably furthest ahead of the Western startups are still really struggling with it. Mm. But I, I would say from a blanket tech startup angle, that is the hardest. Yeah, It is the absolute hardest to get from one employee to 100 employees as opposed to 100 to 1,000. Like that, that jump to the revenue and to actually setting up a proper business is the hardest graft. And that's why I think, I mean, yes, it's a complex market, but also if you just look at it from a, from a startup mentality, that is the hardest corner to take. And does, does the regulation legislation make that harder within the automotive industry? I'm sure it doesn't make it easier. Mm. <laughs> I mean, well, I, I, don't, I don't think the legislators sit around trying to figure out ways to make anything easier. <laughs> when did regulation ever make anything easier? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, the industry is used to being told to jump ever higher. Uh, and and to be fair, it often, often does, but I can't imagine how, how tough it... Well, we've seen how tough it is to launch into that space. Yeah. Um, Peter, what... The industry being disrupted from all, all yeah. sides, but, but what can the car industry teach those who would like to disrupt it? What does the industry do well? The industry does lots of things well, right? It does systems integration incredibly well. It does R&D incredibly well. It does CapEx and manufacturing incredibly well. And for all the talk about these guys haven't changed in 100 years, the tech companies are coming to eat their lunch, China's coming, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, these are still very significant moats, particularly the manufacturing side, you know, and even distribution side. I mean, Tesla has struggled a lot with distribution and servicing. Uh, a lot of the new companies are going to struggle with uh, distribution and servicing as well. So the car industry is is very, very good at lots of those things. But the question for future vehicles is, how much do those things matter? You know, how much does the build quality on a vehicle or the kind of plushness of the feel or the driving dynamics which these guys are incredibly good at. Is that the differentiator in the future? Or do people really only care about what the experience is like in the cabin with the software or, you know, the service app or anything else like that? So that's the big question. You know, in the, in previously, people cared about what the engine was like and they cared about driving dynamics. And maybe they won't so much in the future. Maybe there's a fundamental change coming in what people actually want in vehicles, which comes back to the kind of value chain thing, right? Are these guys world-class hardware manufacturers in a world where being a world-class hardware manufacturer doesn't put you at the top of the food chain? Mm. Where do you think the automotive industry is in its software journey, for want of a better phrase, really? Is it... Is that the place where the likes of, of, of Google can, can teach the industry the most? I think it goes back to the build versus buy and, and focus conversation of like, if it already exists, why are you going to recreate the wheel? I have a phone. I just want to get in the car and it just works. I don't want to have to have a whole nother system that is potentially different if I have an Apple phone and then all of a sudden the OS in my car is Google. Like, is that really the optimal um, experience for me as a driver? I don't know. But I also think that, um, you know, it's interesting to see the stuff that's that's coming out of China because uh, they're focusing, all, all the OEMs are focusing a lot on creating cars that match for that customer demand. If you look at that market, they are 
mobility, like mobile phone first, essentially, they kind of skipped over the PC and went just straight to mobile phones. So that changes their behavior and the way in which they will accept or reject any sort of software that we try to push on them. And so I think it's really interesting when you see companies like VW um, investing a ton of time and actually almost airing on making a different model for that market that appeases that customer's demand. Mm. VW is an interesting one um, with Carriad feature what it's got on there. Is, is that a, a good example, a bad example of, uh, of, of how not or how to do software? That might be the understatement of the morning. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, look, I mean, it is no secret that Carriad has been uh, a bit of a fiasco for Volkswagen. It has led to delays of some very important models for them, not just EVs, right? But the Golf was delayed as well because of it. I remember reading the Porsche prospectus uh, last year when it came out for the Porsche IPO, and their single biggest risk was the fact that they were saddled with Volkswagen's own software. And by the way, Volkswagen had taken all of their software people over to Carriad. Now, VW has you know, relaunched Carriad. They've got someone else running them now. Um but it's, it, software is really hard. Making software is really hard. You are in a fight for talent and not just manufacturing talent. If you are trying to build good software, you're in a fight for the best coding people and the best AI people. And not just with our car companies, right? You're in a fight, even not just with Google and Apple, right? You're in a fight with every business that wants to make software. And hiring 20,000 software people is not the same as having two or three really, really, really world-class people in who know coding, who know what they're doing, who can make a real difference. So the car companies have a fight for talent on their hands. And that's quite difficult, even if you let them work remotely, right? And you don't make them move to Wolfsburg, which is, let's face it, going to be a disincentive to leave Silicon Valley. You know, if you let them work remotely, you still have to convince these people that a car company is the place they want to be. Right, versus an AI company or a fintech company or or a pharma company or something else like that. So the car industry is is kind of once again gone from being, you know, the biggest gorilla in the cage to finding that actually there's quite a lot of other businesses that and industries that almost look more attractive to software people than them. And that's that's one big issue. And the other really big issue that they have with software as an industry in general is hardware has a very long iteration time. And models run for 14 years with a kind of halfway through um, upgrade. And yet software is built so quickly that by the time a car comes out, the software in it is almost redundant. And you've got to put hardware stuff in that allows you to do over-the-air updates future-proofed for at least 14 years or maybe 15, 20 years, however long you think the car is going to go on the road for. And that, that... is very difficult, right, to have the hardware timeline and the software timelines that are so fundamentally different to bring them together. And also the fact that these are big businesses, right? These are big businesses. And as much as many of the leaders who we've got on this list and who kind of we talk to a lot are very sensible, very visionary, really agile, you know, they are running oil tankers, you know, oil tankers that are culturally sometimes very, very slow to change. So yeah, it's a huge challenge. How how does Silicon Valley view the automotive industry, both maybe as it was and as it wants to be? I mean, I I think that 
the way that Tesla does things it has kind of opened up a, a new way of of doing things, a, a new experience. I think very much before Tesla came on the scene, there there was a lot of, um, and probably still is, at least in Silicon Valley, angst around the buying and owning process of car ownership. Um, and I think the ease of use and transaction that Tesla has introduced into the system, um, it, you know, going back to the point you made earlier of asking why, like, why is it done this way? Why do we have these constructs in place? And then just disrupting that a bit um, is something that is very attractive to consumers because they, you know, they're busy. They don't have time for this. And what is happening with car ownership then? You know, we talked about, about the hardware, the software, but then it comes to the, the physically owning a car. It seems that that's not something the industry wants us to do in the future. Well, it depends on who you are referring to in terms of the industry, because you have the likes of Uber. Lyft is an American reference. It's a it started around the same time Uber did, but it was all donation based. But I mean, both of those companies started in Silicon Valley at the same time. They both in 2015 were like, we are going to replace car ownership by the year 2025. No one's going to own cars. Well, here we are. It's almost 2024. Um, and that hasn't happened. And now, interestingly, um, Lyft still got is, a year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but Lyft is pivoting to help you manage your car. So now not only can you get a ride with them, but you can also um, service your car. You can get roadside assistance. Like they've gone the complete other way to try and make ends meet within the company. Um, you know, we've been to some OEM symposiums where they're really focused on different kinds of mobility. So it is car ownership, but it's also like, could you swap your car for another car? Let's say you need a van this weekend because you're moving something or whatever. Is there flex in the model, different sort of rental agreements where maybe it's more like a zip car where it's like daily or monthly as opposed to locking you into a three-year lease term or whatever it may be. Um, but I also just think that at the end of the day, even though cars are typically used, what, like 4%, um, people still like the convenience and st they still enjoy driving. So I'm not sure that it will ever go away completely. It's the it's the convenience thing, right? So when you look at spreadsheets, a car is a terrible asset to own because it sits in your drive for 95% of the time unused. And yet everybody still wants them, right? So I think you've got a difference between uh, pay for access and that gets us onto and gets us onto subscriptions and sharing, right? Which I think are kind of two slightly different angles on this, right? So the way that people pay for access is, has changed a lot, right? People used to buy cars in cash and then with bank loans and then PCP. Now you've got leasing, which is much more prevalent. And then a lot of the car companies talk about subscriptions. But if you look at the kind of make of a subscription deal, it's basically leasing, but just sounds a little bit sexier and more tech, hmm. right? And so which, help, which helps the car companies feel that they're a bit more tech. Um, and, you know, you will see bonds of ownership get looser, definitely. Does it go the full gamut where no one uh, has a car and people pay for access completely? Probably not. People still want a private vehicle. Now, there has been, there has been a, a decline in... 
people taking driving tests, people getting new cars for the first time, uh, certainly among young people, certainly in mega cities, which has happened at the same sort of time that you've seen the explosion of Uber and Lyft. Although, honestly, I think probably quite a lot of that is correlation rather than causation because of things like people are spending more money on rents. There's much more differences around identity, right? So when we were all 17 at sort of around about the same time, having a car was a status symbol, right? You were the person in your group who had a car. It was cool. You could all go places. But having... um, but now there's a much more of a kind of identity online. People are much less into that. They're much less identified by stuff. And so that has changed what people want. The question is when that generation gets into their 30s, has kids and moves out of mega cities, do they still want private car access because you have children and car seats and stuff and bikes in the back? Yes, they will still want private vehicle access. And most of the car companies that have tried the sharing thing or even tried the system where you have one car and then a van at the weekend and then a sports car on the sunny day and then something else have found that those are incredibly poor businesses from an asset utilization point of view. You've got to have so many different types of cars in your books. Funnily enough, everyone wants the convertible and the sunny weekend. Um, And actually, most of those schemes have now stopped. Uh, And even... You know, BMW and Mercedes put a lot of money into car sharing a few years ago on the basis of a McKinsey slide that told them that car sharing would be worth a billion within a few years. And here's a chart that shows you that no one will buy private cars and all the cars will be shared. Well, they sold that business a few years ago, having lost vast amounts of money on it. So uh, private car access has a a long and healthy life ahead of it. Mm -hmm. I found uh, a story of... uh probably told before but I always remember Mark Field the then Ford CEO standing up at one Detroit auto show saying we're going to become a mobility company because our business is worth 100 billion but this one's worth 300 billion I remember asking him so what what, what do you mean can you define mobility and he couldn't he couldn't really answer the question and uh, there's a good example car companies are mobility companies anyway uh, Toyota has made a $10,000 truck for emerging markets i mean that's that's mobility even if it's it's old tech so i often find that the car industry can sometimes have a bit of an identity crisis about what it wants to be and where it wants to get to and doesn't doesn't communicate the change particularly well um so much of that i think you're completely right there's an identity crisis and so much of that is driven by financial markets that all of these companies are listed they're all infuriated that they are big, complex professional businesses that have terrible, terrible uh, valuations according to how much they actually do. And they look at tech companies with huge valuations and they look at Tesla, which is you know worth more than any other car company on earth. And they look at all the other EV startups, which are all worth lots of money given none of them make money. And they're quite cross about this. And they want to do something to try and convince investors that they are tech, that they are industrially de-risked, that they are you know, much more worth investing in than just a clunky old manufacturer. And you're right, by and large, that doesn't work because, funnily enough, none of those businesses make money. But identity crisis is absolutely right. When you see it with BMW and their whole, you know, the subscription that you had to pay for to heat your seats or whatever it was... Um, I mean, it is interesting because you you do look at a valuation of a tech company. They're predominantly recurring revenue, software models. 
if they do have a professional services component to their business as, as in like one time, it's quite small. So the majority of their business is recurring. It looks really great on a balance sheet. You get high valuation, stock price goes up, everybody's happy. Um, and so you take this hardware business and try and figure out how you can square peg round hole it into a recurring revenue business so that you can improve all the money, all the valuations and all the rest of it. Um, I think one of the things I would love to see coming out of the industry is actually for some fresh blood. A lot of the OEMs that I know and love, the people that I work with just kind of cycle around the business. And I would love to see like that. It, I think that's the difference between kind of these up and coming EV companies or the autonomous driving. They have all these, these fresh new brains that are in injecting energy and a different way of doing things into those businesses. And when you look at the the historical OEMs, they're not really matching pace with that. And I think they're missing the trick. Hmm. Uber um, is a company on our list. Where is Uber now? That was a company that had huge ambitions and was going to change everything. You know, we, we, we heard as well, going to get rid of our cars by 2025. Where is Uber on its journey if excuse the pun uh well they've obviously a lot of their early business model was predicated on replacing drivers with autonomy that they've done away with that they've sold the autonomy unit and they're not trying to do that actually uber as a business is now hugely as you know to food delivery which is a massive massive area for them and are still expanding globally in kind of drivers and riding so that's going to be predominantly their business but they are they've gone very very quiet you're right on all the questions around are they going to fundamentally replace car ownership in the future now we can we can get on to the discussion around um autonomy and what that means for car ownership and the kind of timelines around that but uber as a business has clearly decided maybe because investors are tired of just burning lots and lots of money while they wait for technology to to come to fruition. But they've decided that's not somewhere they want to play in. When are they even are they breaking even yet? There's lots of different profit measures, but not on the ones that actually matter, no. Because I mean at least in London you see, yes, obviously Uber Eats, but now they're branching out into you can book the what's it called? The ferry on the ferry, on the Thames. Yeah, planes, like, okay. yeah, you can book that. There's also bikes. Yeah. I mean, they're also trying to edge into the mobility provider space of planes, trains and automobiles, essentially. I remember reading their their white paper on it was Uber Elevate, right, which was the the VTOL business where they were going to have this scheme where you live out in the countryside and you get a flying Uber that takes you over to you know, a kind of base station on a roundabout and then there's an Uber waiting to pick you up from there and it becomes this integrated end-to-end out-of-city, inner-city transport thing. And reading the the paper behind it, it was pretty clear it was never going to work. But this was at a time when they had... It just wouldn't. It, it, this was at a time when they had huge and vast ambitions, right? And you know, much as the economy goes in cycles, right, a lot of new technology has hype cycles. And so we were in a very big hype cycle peak at that point around VTOLs, around autonomy, around no one owning cars. And we are, we've had a correction since then, right? So people are now much more realistic on the future of those technologies. Mm. Where are we with, with autonomy? Is it, is it a desirable technology? Because here at Autocar, we're writing about you know, cars every single day and driving them. And 
the increasingly automated driving systems just seem increasingly more annoying, you know, beeping at you and pulling your hands, which is probably the work of legislators more than anything else. But but from from the tech world, is is autonomy still seen as a, a potential golden goose, a sort of a final frontier to, to conquer the automotive industry, really, and, and, and drive the cars for us? I don't know that it's like the... I don't think anything is the golden egg anymore. You know, going back to... Uber saying they were going to replace car ownership. I think any hyperbolic statements like that, everyone just kind of rolls their, their eyes and moves on. I do think the autonomous driving, though, is interesting because if you look at it from the perspective of fully like robotic, humanless interaction, um, the ROI in that is pretty tough. And that's also quite far out. I mean, you have to drive these cars for billions of miles to actually test them effectively. Um, to, for them to pass all the legislative hoops so that they can be on the road. Um, I do think it's interesting when you see companies like VW and Ford pulling back from their autonomous um, uh, investments to actually just focus on putting more autonomy into the cars that we own and actually enabling that faster because that can be a differentiator for them in the car market today. And the ROI is is here and it's tangible. Um, so I think we'll probably see the companies that really specialize in robotic driving and autonomous driving to still march forward and um, make the path to market much faster. But I don't think it's it's going to be anytime soon. And I don't think it's going to just, it's not going to be this big flip that all of a sudden takes over the world, in my opinion. It's kind of interesting because you asked where the technology's at. At the moment, it almost works, right? And it's almost worked for quite a long time. Mm. But when you talk about the car companies pulling out, and they pulled out because they thought there was no business model rather than concerns over the technology, but you have this issue at the moment where you've got two autonomy developments going on at the same time. You've got what we call level four, five, the kind of you know um, uh, steering wheel free robopod that might in the future disrupt car ownership in mega cities, maybe. And then you have the much less sexy driver assistance systems that are coming in. And if you think about why we're doing autonomous development, right? Uh, is it because it creates new business models? Maybe. But the way it was always historically sold to everybody was safety. Right. Human error is responsible for killing a million people annually You know, in the world. You get rid of human error, you save lives. But what we're actually seeing is that uh, the very dull lane-keeping, automatic emergency braking, driver monitoring systems that you're going to see in cars in the future, those will save many more lives than level four will by the time we get to level four. Right. So Volvo, a few years ago, looked at all accidents that they could monitor. And a third of them were speed, a third of them were driver intoxication, and a third of them were driver distraction. And they basically went, if you speed limit in certain areas, if you drive a monitor and you have eye scanners that can test your inebriation, then you can stop all accidents. And maybe that technology takes a while to come to fruition. But by the time that level four finally works and works on a kind of global scale where it disrupts car ownership and all the other stuff that we've been promised it will do. By then, the lower level autonomy will already have solved so many of the accidents and so many of the fatalities 
that level four will make not that much of a difference. So it's interesting that those guys are pulling back and going, we're going to focus on putting stuff in current vehicles at the moment. Yeah. Um, I remember years ago at one of our FT conferences, we had a, a question and answer session of when we thought autonomous cars would be on the road to an extent that no one buys a car. And a bunch of people who were in marketing all said, oh, five years. And there was one guy who was responsible for building or developing autonomous cars for one of the car makers, whose previous job had been writing uh, code for the Mars rover. Right? So it's kind of brain the size of a planet. And he said 40 years. Right? So he thought it was going to be much, much further away mm. than everybody suggested. So with all this, is there... Is there any desire from a, from a tech company to make a car themselves? A, a Google car, an Apple car, is there that, is that any, any desire? I'm sure there is a desire, probably founded within childlike naivety of, oh, I could do that better, I could do that easier. Um, I mean, it, it still boggles my mind and I know this will sound naive as well, but it still boggles my mind how difficult it is. Like the legal and fiscal, the regulations, all of the things to buy and own a car, it still boggles my mind how unnecessarily complex I think it is. Um, but to overcome that, you would have to disrupt like literally all of the legislation, all the governments, everything from the ground up. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you hear all the time about, oh, Amazon dabbling and maybe making a car or someone over here or there. I just I just don't see it happening. Mm. Not anytime soon. I could see definitely a partnership model. I think that would probably be a safer bet for them to dip their toes in the water. Um, but I don't think that they'll take that leap. Dyson. Got to ask. Okay, go Springs on. Springs to we mind. Do, we can do Dyson if you want. I think that's. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think that's quite a good example of someone who nearly did it. They made the right call, mm. actually. So I spent, as you know, I spent a lot of time looking into the Dyson car project when they were when they were doing it, and they had a they had a couple of models that worked. Uh, the tech was pretty good. Problem one problem was that the solid state batteries weren't going to be ready in time. The other problem was that that meant the project would not be cutting edge enough soon enough, given the suite of other cars that are coming at the time. You know, we've now got something like the BMW iX, which is very, very competitive compared to what the Dyson car potentially would have been like. And also Dyson as a business has other areas it's working in, particularly things like air quality, um, which is a huge growth area in places like Asia, where they can do much, much better for much lower capital investment than they would because making cars is hard, right, and expensive. And actually, you look back now, uh, it was a very good call of theirs not to try and come into the car industry. But I just want to make one point on the on the tech companies trying to make cars, which is why, right? Why should a tech company want to make a car other than bragging rights, right? What does it mean for them to win in this industry? They want the customer relationship. They want the customer data. Um, the car companies don't have direct customer relationships at the moment. Uh, the tech companies are going to be very good at getting the data, particularly if they provide the OS systems. The customer feels the affinity with that rather than with the car brand. And so therefore, why do you need to get into hardware, which, as we've seen, is an expensive, complicated, difficult business that investors actually downgrade in terms of you know why you should get into it at all. 
um, you don't want to get into it. So you know, the tech companies could do very well out of the car industry without ever having to make a car themselves. Mm. Yeah, and you see that with Apple. I mean, they are fundamentally actually a hardware company, but no one thinks of them that way. And that's actually not where their growth comes from. It comes from the software completely. Mm. And they've s somehow, I mean, they haven't made the pivot, but they've made the balance between those two things work quite beautifully. Um, and so it's, yeah, it is an interesting concept to think about. Maybe an Apple car, maybe one day. <laughs> um, making cars is hard, a theme of today. Um, <laughs> thank you very much uh, to Peter and Harvey for joining us today. Uh, that's all we've got time for. You can check out the full Powerlist 100 on Autocar Business. Thank you very much to our sponsors, Keyloop, and head to autocar.co.uk slash business for more on the Autocar Powerlist 100. Thank you very much. Thank you.